promises can be very dangerous things. At least they can for you and for me. And we make all manner of promises in the course of our lives, from the trivial to the profound and everything in between. You promise to meet somewhere at a particular time, at a particular place, or perhaps you make a longer-term promise by committing to help someone with a major project or attain a significant goal. Some of you have promised to love, honor, and cherish till death do you part. Others have cleverly avoided that. <laughs> the, um, despite our best intentions, however, we've all experienced times when we have not, when we have failed to keep our promises. Now, this happens for many reasons. Perhaps our circumstances changed or the commitment required was far greater than we thought, or events beyond our control prohibited us from keeping our word, etc. The truth is that we cannot always keep our promises, however noble our intentions. In stark contrast to our promises, however, are those of our Lord, who always keeps the ones that He makes, because they are grounded in His inviolable nature. As Numbers 23 says, God is not man that He should lie, or the Son of man that He should change His mind. Has He said and will not do it, or has He spoken and will not fulfill it? These rhetorical questions indicate that God's promises can be trusted completely. This morning, I want to look at one especially profound and significant promise of our Lord as it relates directly to the Christmas season that we're currently celebrating. In order to do so, however, we need to review a little bit of history. About a thousand years before Christ, David, Israel's greatest king, was troubled by something. God had given David and the Israelites peace and prosperity. And yet, while David lived in a magnificent palace made of cedar, the Ark of the Covenant, which symbolized God's presence, was housed in a portable tent. Because of David's great zeal and love for God, he thought it was incongruous for him to be living in such splendor while the Ark of the Covenant was in a temporary shelter. He therefore resolved that he would build an appropriate structure, a magnificent temple for God to dwell with his people. As we heard earlier, the Lord had other plans, however, and he instructed the prophet Nathan to tell David what he had purposed instead. Whereas David wanted to build a house, a physical structure for the Lord, the Lord responded that he would build a house for David. What did he mean by this? We read in 2 Samuel 7, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my, for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, this promise referred to as the Davidic Covenant is one of the great foundational promises of Scripture in that it affirms that David's throne or right to rule would be 
last forever. God intends to establish His rule upon earth for the benefit of mankind, and the promise to David is a further articulation of the promise that God had made originally to Abraham in Genesis, namely that He would make from him a mighty nation in which all of the other nations of the world would be blessed. Now, after David's death, his son Solomon did, in fact, build a magnificent temple for the Lord and led Israel through a period of peace and prosperity that made the combined reigns of David and Solomon a golden age in history. Sadly, however, the latter part of Solomon's reign was one of decline. For as often happens with powerful men, his libido got the best of him, and his many foreign wives turned his heart away from the Lord. After Solomon's death, the once glorious unified nation of Israel split into two, the northern and southern kingdoms, each of which had a succession of kings, most of whom did evil in the sight of the Lord. The Davidic line was continued in the southern kingdom, and there were a few highlights, but not many. In 722, the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians, and later in 586, the southern kingdom fell to the Babylonians, who also destroyed Solomon's magnificent temple and took many of the Israelites into captivity. One can imagine a faithful Israelite during this time asking with anguish, what about the promise to David? Where is the Davidic king? As time went on, empires rose and empires fell. After the Assyrians and the Babylonians, the Persians were dominant. And they allowed a remnant of the nation to return to Jerusalem and rebuild its walls and temple, but it wasn't to its former glory. After the Persians came the Greeks, and after the Greeks came the most fierce and powerful empire of them all, namely Rome. Again, one can imagine a devout Israelite asking, what about the promise to David? Now, during the time when Rome was the dominant power, there was, in fact, a king over Israel, but he was not in the line of David, nor was he, an entire, was, was he entirely Jewish. He was an Idumean of half-Jewish descent, and his name was Herod. Now, as part of the imperial strategy, Rome allowed local rulers to stay in place, as long as they kept order, remained obedient to Rome, and paid their taxes. Herod was thus a client or vassal king under Roman rule. And in many respects, he was a thoroughly vile and contemptible character. He had ten wives, one of whom he put to death, along with three of his sons. It made Henry VIII look like Mr. Rogers by comparison. Even more tragically, we know from Matthew's account that after he had heard from the wise men from the east who came to inquire about the one who was to be born king of the Jews, Herod, in his paranoia and cruelty, slaughtered the male children under two years old in Bethlehem and surrounding region for fear of having his throne taken from him. 
One of his notable achievements, however, was his plan to rebuild and enlarge the Jewish temple, the construction of which began in his lifetime and finished after his death, making it one of the most magnificent temples of the ancient world. Yet still, one could imagine a faithful Israelite during this time asking, what of God's promise to David? Where is the Davidic king? Well, it so happens that it was in the dark and tumultuous time of Herod's rule and Roman oppression. Over a thousand years after the original promise to David, that the Lord began to fulfill that promise. As Herod, the supposed king of Israel, luxuriated in his magnificent palace while growing increasingly paranoid, in the shadow of the temple that symbolized, in theory at least, the presence of God, five miles away, in the tiny town of Bethlehem, the real king of Israel was born and the real presence of God was manifest in a far more direct and powerful way than anyone could have imagined or predicted. Luke chapter 1, which we just heard, narrates the angel's announcement to Mary of the impending miraculous birth, but I want to emphasize two promises in particular from that passage that speak of our Lord's identity and role. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And when Mary asked how this could be since she was a virgin, the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy the Son of God. The angel's message to Mary is staggering. First, the child she carried was the true Davidic king, the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to David, for he was the one who would reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there would be no end. I mean, looking ahead in the story a bit, we know from Acts chapter 2 that after our Lord was resurrected, He ascended to the right hand of the Father, and there, from there He currently reigns as the eternal King in the line of David. Secondly, and more astonishingly, the angel said that the offspring shall be called the Son of God. I remember Charles Swindoll preaching many years ago, and he said that when Christ was born, for the first time in human history, the voice of God was directly articulated through a human body, and that not in the decrees of a king or the oracles of a prophet, but in the cries of an infant lying in the straw. The incarnation, the doctrine that the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, took on flesh to achieve our redemption is the central truth of the Christian faith. And it is astonishing to realize that while the infant Jesus, while 
in, as the incarnate Son of God was held in His mother's arms, as the eternal Son of God, He was holding the universe in existence. For centuries, theologians have tried to understand the incarnation with some of the more adventurous constructing theories about trying to explain how such an event could be possible. But the weight of divine mystery cracks the scaffolding of our logic, and we are left with wonder and awe and worship. As God weaves His tapestry of redemption through history, He keeps His promises. But in His infinite creativity, His fulfillment of them often extends beyond what we might have originally thought. The promise given to David over 3,000 years ago was one such example for its ultimate fulfillment was not a mere earthly king. But it was the King of kings, the eternal Son of God, the Prince of Peace whose birth we celebrate this blessed Christmas season. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank You for being the great architect of history who orders all events to Your glory and to the salvation and edification of Your people as You as you pursue your plan of redemption through the ages. We thank you for the promise of all that you have fulfilled and continue to fulfill, and we are grateful that you have called us to be in eternal fellowship with you through your precious Son, whose incarnation we celebrate today. Amen.